Hey booze, welcome to Crime and Spirits, your one-stop shop for handcrafted cocktails, spooky stories, and all things true crime. I am your resident bartender, Suze, and I'll be teaching you all a new drink recipe at the beginning of each of our episodes. And I'm Bree, drinker of the drinks, and I write the stories we tell. So, what should you expect while listening to us? Well, good question. There's going to be some swearing. Oh, a lot of swearing. Probably some rambling. Definitely rambling. And most likely a lot of off-topic pop culture references. We specialize in Bob's Burgers and maybe Always Sunny. Definitely. But what do you want from us? We're going to be drinking. And hopefully you will be too. So come hang out with us each week. And if you want to spend more time with us, check out the description for the link to all of our socials. Let's buckle up buttercups and sip tight. Let's get into it. What up, what up, what up? Hey. Welcome back to Crime and Spirits. I'm Brie. And I'm Suze. And we are back at you with another episode. You know how we roll. <laughs> how are you doing today? Pretty great. Loving everything. Wish it wasn't hot as a witch's left side city, <laughs> but what are you going to do? It is very fucking hot, so uh, hopefully we don't pass out during recording We today. do have a fan going, so if you hear the shh yeah. of the fan, that, that would be why. So we don't die. Yeah. Sorry in advance, guys. Mm-hmm. So, we have a pretty big case that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, we are going to be discussing the lives and crimes of the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Now, if you're familiar with this case, you are going to understand this is a very big one. Because mm-hmm. it's essentially two cases in one, if you will. Well, and there's two perpetrators, and it's just a whole lot. It's there's a, a whole, whole lot. hot mess express, mm-hmm. and it's kind of gross. And um, this one was a toughie for us. Sure but was. we piled through, because I think the end result is interesting to talk about. So we are going to do this in two parts, guys. Uh, there's just a lot of information to get through, and we don't want to force you to sit through, like, four hours of us just getting mad as as things go it's true i feel as though there's gonna be a lot of getting hype because this shit really pissed me off when i was researching yeah i've watched several documentaries about them i've seen her on snapped and i just if i saw her out in public i'd probably punch her in her head so yeah Mm -hmm. no same definitely same and with the day i had today i'm just looking for y'all better look out (laughs) so we're gonna break it up so just a heads up in the beginning i'm sorry i didn't do that last time but we're still learning. <laughs> we're, we're getting it together. So diving on in, if you don't know about this case, these two humans, if no, I use that term very loosely, crazy monsters. Um, they are a husband and wife duo from St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, who earned their moniker because simply they were killers that happened to be very good looking. And charming. It was really... the. It's Mm -hmm. just crazy. (laughs) Um, On the outside, you'd never guess that Paul and Carla were awful humans who got enjoyment out of doing terrible things. But as we are about to learn, that's exactly what they are. This case is really gross, and unfortunately, there's a bit more detail than some of the cases we've covered so far. So I'm going to throw a trigger warning out there. This case is very heavy on the sexual assault. and I know sadistic sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's not easy to listen to by any means. So I just wanted to let you know before we got into things, if this case is not your jam, there is no worries. We will just catch you next time around. 
Um, I will say, Susan and I do our best to be as respectful as possible while we tell these stories, uh, to both to the victims and their families. This case really gets to me, um, but not everyone in the story gets justice, and it's that reason that compelled us to tell the story ultimately. So, with all of that being said, Suze has come up with a deliciously, extremely strong cocktail for us to, uh, help get through this, so. Oh, yeah. So... One of Bree's friends slash co-workers named Sarah, hey girl, hey, suggested hey. because it's the Ken and Barbie killers that we go pink drink. Um, which, genius idea. She recommended we use the New Amsterdam Pink Whitney Vodka, which we used several cases ago. And then I had the brainstorm of how about we use all of the things we've already used yeah. and just put them all in one cup get wild yeah well because i feel as though we're going to need a super strengthy drink to get into this mm -hmm. um not only because the acts themselves were heinous but the absolute denial these people had of how bad they were oh it's yeah. just like mind-boggling the egos to me. on these motherfuckers yes, are it's just it's insane to me gross so to offset the caca-ness of the case <laughs> We're going with a twist on a Long Island. So for those of you who don't know what a Long Island iced tea is, it is a combo of vodka, tequila, light rum, triple sec, gin, and I do sours with a splash of Coke. In color, it looks a lot like a long, like a regular iced tea. Yeah, like it's an like iced tea lemonade. Weird brownish Arnold Palmery kind yep. of color. Yeah. So for this one, <clears throat> instead of using the traditional boozes, we're still keeping it the same. So rum, gin, vodka, tequila, triple sec, but we're going pink. And also, in the name of being frugal, we're reusing things. Like, I didn't have to purchase anything for this. So yeah. everything that yes. we are using in this drink today has already been featured in a previous episode. Because I have heard um, from some of our friends with their feedback that they wish they could afford to make all of the drinks we make. So I'm trying to, like, sort of make it a little easier on you. Mm -hmm. You can substitute any kind of vodka or gin or whatever you want. But in our instance here, we're using Bacardi Limon. New Amsterdam Pink Whitney Vodka, the Bramble Bombay Gin, Lunazul Tequila, and Montezuma Triple Sec. So all of those, it's a half an ounce of each. You put it in your shaker tin with ice, add one ounce of cranberry juice, shake it. I'm just going to swirl my ice. Um, and then you strain it over fresh ice in whatever glass you want. Top it with some club soda instead of the Coke and garnish it with a lemon wedge. It comes out this beautiful pink color, and let me just tell you, it's like berry and lemon and light and wonderful. So I got to try phase one. Our original version was shopping. with sweet and sour mix, basically, with equal parts lemon juice and simple syrup and then topped with club soda. But we wanted it to be pinker and brighter, so we went cranberry juice, and it so actually I to try it that way. worked out pretty well. Ooh, the Very cranberry great. juice is much better. Yes. Much, much better. what we were thinking. And also, we couldn't think of a name for this at yeah, all. No. So if you have any ideas, just any send, us, send us a message, because I want to give it a name, because it's damn good, and I'd like to claim it as our own, if yeah, you will. Yeah, for sure. And I want to touch on the reusing liquors and all that kind of stuff. We are treating ourselves ever so slightly as, like, you know, a reward for our hard work that we're putting into the podcast. We by no means want to pressure anybody to go spend, like, however much money this liquor ends up costing total. Um... 
that being said, if there's something you want to try and you're unsure of how to navigate the world of the liquor store, because it can get very overwhelming very quickly, please reach out. Suze is a whiz. Like, she will definitely be able to come up with something to get you a drink that's just as good, if not better, than the one that we ended up using in the episode. We have been meaning to work on mocktails. If that is something that interests you guys, please let me know Mm -hmm. because I can definitely do that as well. If you just want to sip something refreshing while you listen or just on a Tuesday, for example, I've got you covered. I can also figure it out. We're eventually going to, you know, run into situations where the. The occasion calls for a good glass of wine or just hanging out with some seltzers. Like, it's not always going to be fancy cocktails. We're just kind of having some fun and finding our footing. Because I just, I, I enjoy making the cocktails. Yeah. I enjoy getting us crunk while we talk about these horrible cases. Like, not for the record. Not because we're going to, like, woohoo, party, but right. just to basically get through the information. This is literally how we would spend our time before we did podcast. Like, it's true. did this podcast. We just and that's have what a microphone now. The idea. So, like... We would just have fun and try to, like, make up drinks and, you know, have a good time. So, all of that being said. Let's get into it, y'all. The thing about this case is that it starts out as one thing and then kind of morphs into something different. While Paul and Carla committed heinous acts together, Paul had a string of sexual assaults under his belt that he had committed on his own. Uh, Before they were the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul was known as the Scarborough Rapist. The assaults began in May of 1987 and continued to May of 1990. So we're going to start by discussing those different attacks and the MO of the person perpetrating them. Because there's a whole goddamn list of them. Yeah. Um, So Scarborough itself is on the smaller side of things. The town is sort of like a suburb for the Toronto area. Um, When the attacks began to happen, no one wanted to admit that it was a serial rapist doing this. Like they had hoped it was just kind of... A handful of isolated incidents, incidents. yeah. Um, it took a little over six months of attacks, and they were pretty consistent attacks, like mm-hmm. time-wise and the same MO and all that kind of stuff, before police even began to warn women to be careful and mindful of their surroundings. Yeah. Um, May 4th was the first attack. A young woman, only 21 years old, was assaulted literally in front of her parents' home after being followed there by a stranger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ten days later, a 19-year-old is assaulted in the backyard of her parents' house. And then in mid-July, there's an attempted rape that takes place. The offender beat the victim, but abandoned the scene when the young woman fought back. Um, after this, there's just the slightest reprieve from the attacks, because the next one doesn't take place until September 29th of 1987. This one gets me, because... Oh, yeah. He broke into the home of a 15-year-old girl and actually entered her bedroom. Um, He jumped her from the back, put his hand over her mouth, and threatened her with a knife that I think he brought with him. I would assume, yeah. Um, It was an attempt to sexually assault her, but the girl's mother, because, you know, she's 15, she lives with her parents. Right. Her mother entered the room, and her screaming actually scared the man off. Um, the young girl walked away from the encounter with just a bruised face and a bite to her ear and, of course, obviously a lifetime of freaking trauma. Um, another man actually ended up getting convicted for this crime, Anthony Hanmayer. Hanmayer? That's how I wrote it. Um, he was convicted in 1989, and he served a full sentence of, I thought it was 16 years. Oh, maybe it was. But it was a long, he served his full sentence, and yeah. I don't quite know, honestly, myself, how uh, the justice system works in Canada, but I know it's more 
similar to um, like the UK. Like some of their stuff doesn't make sense. Yes, no, it is very similar to the UK because I uh, watched a documentary to refresh myself on this case and um, one person on there was like a law professor and he mentions he compares it to mm-hmm. British okay. law a lot and even to the states because I, I was surprised to see how much there's like common denominators in right. the way their justice system works versus ours so that's another thing I find interesting about this case it happens in another country that's so close that it doesn't seem like it's another country right so because it's it's literally right up the road like yeah. I went to Canada when I turned 19 because right. you could drink legally in yeah. Canada so like it's just you go across the border going to the thing. Niagara Falls on the Canadian side was a day it's trip. like a thing yeah um so later on down the road Paul Bernardo does eventually admit admit to committing this crime, and Anthony is officially exonerated. However, he still winds up serving a full sentence in prison. Right. So, I, I don't know. Like, whoops, we're sorry. You know, I don't know if it's like the U.S. where they pay them restitution for I'm the time sure. that they spent. I honestly, I appreciate any effort that gets made in these moments, but at the end of the day, like... Our justice system did not work. Their justice system in this case did not work the way that it was intended. And it's always really sad to see somebody lose any amount of their life, especially when getting accused of a violent crime. Well, and it's a sexual crime. A se- violent sexual crime on an underage is a whole other level. For all like, of yeah, it's literally like, like. I feel as though in our prisons, people like that get beat up a lot. Oh, there's absolutely <laughs> a hierarchy system in, in jail, like thousand percent. So, this takes us to the month of December. There are two separate attacks that take place. The first one happens on the 16th. A 16-year-old is sexually assaulted. This is the attack that finally, finally, made the police start warning women to be careful and mindful of their surroundings, especially when alone. Law enforcement had noticed a pattern emerging and that the offender had a penchant for stalking his victims and would often use bus stops as hunting grounds which makes makes sense for him like it's this is probably a place that you're not really like on edge or on guard I don't doing this as my side job I'm on edge all the time everywhere oh yeah I mean I live on (laughs) the edge (laughs) being a single woman it's just but uh, and honestly though this was the mid 1980s so things were different things were different then you didn't have a cell phone to be like i feel nervous this guy's creeping me out Mm -hmm. or whatever you know what i mean oh yeah you're just sort of on your own i can't even reconcile that in my brain it just seems how did you even live your life i said i did make a joke to my dad on father's day (laughs) and uh i was like yeah you know any 80s movie pretty much any comedy would have been solved with a cell phone. None yes. of the hijinks would have been sued. Nobody yes. would have been misplaced. Nothing would have happened. There's so many times where I'm like, if you would have just called them. <laughs> right. Oh, wait. I know. Same It made me laugh out loud, though. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. So they're basically telling women, like, look, if you're out and you're alone, especially at night, especially at bus stops, like, be careful. This guy is a repeat offender. This is happening. And they finally made it public. Um... Following all of that was the attack that took place on the 23rd of December. The offender uses a knife to threaten and rape a 17-year-old girl. It's at this point that the public began to refer to this man as the Scarborough Rapist. And we're seeing his MO start to... We're seeing a lot of the same things repeated. Absolutely, yeah. Um, 
So this brings us to the man behind the axe. Mm -hmm. His name is Paul Bernardo. He is still alive. He's... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he was born in Ontario in 1964. From everything that I read, he was described as a happy young boy who smiled a lot. His parents, Kenneth and Marilyn, were financially well off, and basically they were an average, stable, middle-class family. Yeah, just like your normal... To begin with, mm -hmm. until 1975, when Kenneth, the dad... Um, actually has charges filed against him for molesting a child um so as you can imagine that rocked the family dynamic mm -hmm. but not as much as the next revelation um when paul was 16 his mother actually revealed to him that his conception was the result of an affair that she had i am so curious as to how that like what happened like did mom just be like you know what Paul, it's time that you knew. Well, for for from everything that I read up until this point, he was like respectful, yeah, nice kid, had everything going for him, good looking, mm -hmm. not overachieving, but achieving enough. You right. know what I mean? Just sort of flying under the radar. I wonder what what happened that made mom just be like, you know what? It's time to drop right. the truth bomb. You know what I mean? I know. Like especially that. It's not even like it doesn't appear as if there's like well you your biological father wants to be involved like there, it doesn't seem to be a reason behind right the reveal if you will so i don't from what little you know i know this might not occur to you but paul's pissed like fucking <laughs> pissed he's so mad his behavior starts to change here he got real nasty towards his mom a lot of the time he would call her names like slob and whore that's so degrading. Mm -hmm. It's not even like it's such an escalation that it does make you wonder if there was something maybe right simmering under the surface, right. and this was like the trigger to it. Well, and his hatred of his mom is obviously going to transfer into his hatred for other ladies. If we've learned anything from Ted Bundy and Ed Kemper and all the other ones, well, and it just. Talk about snowball in hell. It just keeps getting larger and angrier. And mm -hmm. so Paul leaves for college. He begins his studies at the University of Toronto. Um, and this is where we see the violent nature part of him start to come out like more and more. Um, he would go out to the bars, pick up women, and then would go on to humiliate and beat them. Um, the scariest part to me about Paul is that he was good looking. He was smart. He was charismatic. Charismatic, <laughs> charismatic, and he used all of that to just be manipulative as fuck. Yeah. Um, he enjoyed actually using his desirable traits to lure in women just to mess with them. Um, he enjoyed manipulating women and taking them off guard. Um, he actively chose to do those things, and he really seemed to get a lot of disgusting joy out of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I the desirable traits was a quote from somebody. Um, the documentary, I think I mentioned it at some point very soon here, actually, but it was called The Ken and Barbie Killers, The Lost Tapes. And somebody they had featured on the show was somebody who was dating Carla's older, or, yeah, nope, dating Carla's sister at the same time where Paul and Carla become entwined. And so they spend a lot of time together, and he ends up getting kind of close to them. And he was the one that was like, when I met Paul, I was just like, I was enamored by him. He had, 
he literally was like he had what I considered to be desirable traits and I began to look up to him like this is the kind of man that we're talking about here well and it was from everything that I read be it your auntie your grandma your dad your brother your sister Mm -hmm. the dog everybody was like he's such a nice guy yeah he's so generous he spreads about like what wealth he has like but if you ask me if you look at pictures of him even from like before these attacks started happening like to me he looks dead behind the eyes like i am not surprised that the man turned out to be a psychopath but i don't know if that's because i'm colored with like the knowledge i know we're gonna get to it later but look up their wedding picture yeah just google it because i was like oh my god these people look like they just murdered somebody because they did (laughs) anyways so (laughs) we're gonna jump back to the scarborough attacks we're going to start seeing some significant time gaps between incidents. And that is because Carmela, Carla Homolka, her last name is hell to say Homolka. a million times. I only know because I watched the documentary and yeah. I was like, how do you even Homolka? <laughs> um, so this is because Carla enters the scene at this point. We're going to dive into her deal in a hot minute, but we want to give you all the information regarding the attacks first because what's fucked up here? is that Paul begins to actively date Carla and is traveling back and forth between Scarborough and St. Catharines. And when he's with Carla and her family, he is a picture-perfect boyfriend. And when he's in Scarborough, he's a sadistic rapist. Like, to the nth degree, y'all. So this brings us to April of 1988. Paul attacks a 17-year-old girl. He follows that up with nearly getting caught staking out a bus stop. Mm-hmm. Um, as we mentioned, he really, I think he almost enjoyed the, like, hunt. I'm, I'm doing oh, for quotes. Sure. He liked the hunt of it. And for sure. It, like the the cheetah that's picking off the limping gazelle. You know what I mean? He really liked to find, like, the one that was by herself or, mm-hmm. you know. I also think that it speaks to his ego because he definitely just had a chip on his shoulder like he wasn't he wasn't it didn't even seem as if he was trying to hide the fact that he was like chilling there literally like scoping out this itch well and that so on may 25th an investigator i i don't it didn't specify why he was near a bus stop but this Mm -hmm. investigator noticed paul hiding under a tree right huh well at this point they you know had given the alert two women they have said you know don't go out alone don't go out at night right and they had mentioned you know like he scopes out bus stops so i wouldn't be surprised if an investigator was just there to see if he showed up to make sure if this exact situation happened um so paul actually gets away before the investigate investigator can catch him and i feel as though there's like 14 different examples of where like they almost had him yeah honestly <laughs> almost mm-hmm. so close um five days later paul does wind up committing another rape it's an 18 year old woman but this one happens 25 miles southwest of scarborough so i don't know if he was maybe like i need to get a little bit away you well, know what i mean he he seems a lot of these the thing about these attacks is that they seem as if they're like moments of being out of control Mm -hmm. but in my opinion from what i've learned about this case is that he was very much in control and he i think he legitimately was just like i'm gonna i think he was just so adaptable well so his victimology is literally like a woman 
who's by herself. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter if she's 15, 25, yeah. 30. It is what it is. Is she alone near a bus stop? He definitely okay, had a preference of teenagers, which just is disgusts me. a whole nother icky thing. On a whole nother level. I feel like I need a shower. I don't Oof. understand how... You shouldn't even be considered a legal adult until you're 21. Like, that's, like... Mm-hmm. Mm. It's insane to me that 18-year-olds, like, at 18, I was not responsible enough to, like, manage my own life, like, in any way, shape, or form. They're still kids. You're still a kid. Your brain's not even fully formed. Like, the fact that he was actively seeking out, like, 15 to 19-year-olds, like, is disgusting. Well, and this isn't an instance of him using his charms like he did on the college girls. Right. So it's like, I don't... Well, it's a different game. I feel like the women at the bars was a game that, I think him. that was too easy for yeah, him. Yeah, so exactly. So he had to, like, one-up it to here. And this is, like, this is what we're seeing. Like, we can see an escalation pretty much every single time he commits any kind of act... We're seeing some sort of addition or escalation in his demeanor, his aggression, the violence, like, any part of it. Like, he's coming into his own as a person, and, like, it, this person is evil. Could you be any more sadistic? It's fucking gross. Um, so I think maybe the episode in May sort of scared him, because we don't actually see another attack until October mm-hmm. 4th, 1988. In this instance, he attempts to rape a young woman, but she fought him off. She ends up walking away from the incident with two stab wounds that required 12 stitches. Mm-mm. Hell no. The next month, he assaults an 18-year-old girl in the backyard of her parents' house. Again, here we are. Yep. The very next day, the Metro Police form a task force charged with the duty of finding out who is responsible for all of this. I mean, that took, what, a year and a half? Yeah. Right. Honestly, though. Um, it's imperative that law enforcement comes at this with all they've got because they're starting to see the escalation of aggression and violence, the stabs, the, you know, all that kind and of stuff. another thing to keep in mind, guys, is that these are the reports that, these are the assaults that were reported. That is, that is a valid point. And I can't imagine him being dormant for as long right. as this timeline tells we us. We all know that most sexual assaults are not reported. We all know that things, like, it's not a good situation for most victims and it's really difficult to come forward so the women that did come forward are the strongest people on the planet first and foremost but like think about how many there could be that's what really gets me about that's what got me about reading this like researching this case because like i just know it's there's more than what's on our papers in front of us well, and most of this, I feel as though they only found out after the fact when yeah. he was like, oh, yeah, also that. well, I did those things, too. Yeah. <laughs> Flips hair. <laughs> um, so they know that there's a specific MO and a victimology is sort of being established here. At this point, we know that this crazy person likes to stalk his victims, peep in their windows, fuck with them if he can. Some of the victims reported that he made them tell him that they loved him. Like big, big, big gross. Um, one victim actually says that he claims his given moniker during an attack, telling her, I am the Scarborough rapist and I'll never be caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, law enforcement is also seeing a pattern in his chosen victims. He liked the young teens and women who were on the smaller side. Because, like, he was... Okay. I, he wanted to overpower them mm-hmm. and fuck with them. Well, I mean, we also know what they say about rape as a crime it's about power it's not usually about the sex sexual itself. act itself and yeah. so it makes sense like this guy is just he's literally like american psycho 
That's what he reminds me of. It is true. I could definitely see him, like, dancing around, like, combing his hair and stuff. Like, well, and, you know, and like, I have a book that um, I started digging into, and it's, uh, the, like, Inside the Life of a Sociopath, and it's written by a non, like, um, like a non-violent sociopath. It's very interesting. Hmm. And there is a statistic in there that one in five people, or maybe it's one in ten, but it was very surprising to me, is a sociopath. That's a lot of people. Right. And so, you know, it really kind of makes you think. And then the, she, like, made a joke about how she was a lawyer and how they're all, like, either lawyers or, like, hedge fund managers or, like, all those things. Which would make sense because you have to be, like, a huge dickhead to, like, get ahead in those well, kinds of... you have of, to lack that kind of empathy for You can't have people. feelings. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. So I just find it very interesting, the path <laughs> that he goes down. Like, I think that we're truly seeing, like, the formation of... A psychopath. Absolutely. If he has, if he's not already there, uh, he might be there. So, a few days after Christmas, Paul attempts to commit rape, but is scared off by a neighbor. He doesn't make another attempt until June twentieth, nineteen eighty-nine. The woman he chose fought Paul and manages to scratch up his face. Uh, her screams alerted her neighbors to what was going on, and Paul flees the scene. That's another thing, too. Like, I think there's this level of just, like, he, like, almost cowardice, maybe? Like, well, he wants to do the acts and have the power and exert who he is, but he also doesn't want to be caught. That fear mm-hmm. of getting caught makes him a tiny little I bitch. also think that he wants them to submit to him. And, and when I they feel like when they won't, he's just, just like, well, fuck this. it. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not worth it anymore. Gross. Ugh. She's doing air quotes and saying, I can't. I just can't. Um, After this situation, the assault of a 22-year-old woman takes place mid-August, then follows with the assault of a 15-year-old girl that Paul saw at a bus stop. The last attack of 1989 takes place on December 22nd, and his victim was a 22-year-old woman. Which, this brings us to, like, the last attack. Last known attack, I guess, if you will. Because I I read a lot where it was like, he might could have done this, that, and the third. Mm -hmm. But he's admitted to some stuff, but not all of it kind of thing. So it's just a big... Yeah. This is the last known one. Um, May 26, 1990. He assaults a 19-year-old. However... What makes this situation different and so much better, I guess, in the long run, is that the victim is actually able to vividly recall her attacker's face. So the police were then able to create a composite sketch, which they then released to the public. And let me tell you. It looks like that it motherfucker. fucking looks like Paul Bernardo. Like, whoa. Like one- and it's just a pen and ink Mm-hmm. paper like black and white line drawing but like if you put his face next to this composite I was like oh, whoa yeah it was it's it's, it's creepy how how much of a like which good is. for her in the midst yeah. of all that was happening to be able to remember details like any of Honestly, those heroes I'm telling you um so in July of that year 1990 the Metro Police received two different tips um stating that they feel as if Paul himself resembled the sketch He's interviewed um, by two detectives, but they found Paul uh, mm-hmm. to be more credible than the people who reported him. Um, they did request a DNA sample from him, and he freely gave it to them. 
Um, but back then, I mean, DNA takes forever now, but back then it took literally even longer, like oh four God, times yeah. as long. Mm -hmm. Um, so we won't actually hear anything more about that for a few years. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Carla. This bitch. This bitch. She was also an Ontario native, but she lived in St. Catharines, which is a large city that sits right on the shore of Lake Ontario. Looks like it's a beautiful place. Like, the documentary showed a lot of, like, really pretty uh, shore pine, shots and things like that. Trees it's and really like pretty. sloping, like, beaches and yes. stuff like, like that. Like, I kind of want to go there. Not because of all this, but, like, it looks like just it's just a beautiful place to hang, like, vacation at. Um, Carla was the oldest of three siblings, and she was often described as, quote, well-adjusted, pretty, smart, and popular. As far as her smartness goes, the bitch had an IQ of 132. So keep that in mind as we're moving forward in the story. Very, in very intelligent. Bitch. She had a fondness, heavy air quotes, for animals and worked part-time at a pet store while in school. Now, I, um, I'm i an avid listener of other true crime podcasts, Killer Queens being one of my favorites, and um, some time ago when they came out with their episode on this, I listened to it, and they had mentioned a school friend of hers told a story that um, they Carla wanted to see if her gerbil, her friend's gerbil, could fly. And so she, like, rigged up, like, I don't know, like, wings or something. I don't quite remember the details. But she, like, rigged something up, put the gerbil in this contraption, and then dropped him from, like, high up, like, a few stories up. And I'm pretty sure the gerbil died. And the friend was distraught. I don't know if you guys know this, but gerbils cannot fly. <laughs> and I know that. And my IQ is not 130 anything. So what the fuck? Yeah. Dear well, the thing, that's, the thing that really struck her friend was the lack of reaction that Carla showed. The lack of empathy? Weird. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... I flipped my hair, y'all. You couldn't see it, but it was there. And then, so if you think about it, the tri you know, the serial killer triad, blah, 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 um, harming animals mm -hmm. is on there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then she works at a pet store. And so, like, these are just weird connections that could be completely innocent, because this story is going to take a twist at some point that... We won't just get there when we get there. Yeah. So put that on the back burner. <laughs> put a pin in it. Um, at this pet shop, she met a woman named Jennifer Black, and they formed a close knit bond with her. Um, this woman was on the documentary and spoke um, quite highly of Carla. And uh, just I'm telling you, these people had everybody fucking fooled. It, yeah, mm -hmm. she like it. It's almost like these people bewitched everyone around them. I call it Stockholming. It, like, it's just I insane. don't want to be like them, or like I just want to be close to them. So yeah. by default, they are awesome. So this woman was a bit older than Carla, but they have like a, a sister relationship. You know, Carla is the oldest, so she kind of like looked at Jennifer as somebody like an older sister right and um jennifer described carla as a smart yet impressionable young woman which i found very interesting moving through um jennifer facilitated an opportunity for carla to join some of their team on a trip to toronto they were attending a convention of sorts at a hotel this is where carla and paul meet for the very first time she is, you guys, she's 17 when they meet, and he's 20 fucking three. 
gross. I just, there's some things you can't overcome. I get it. It won't matter when you're in your 60s or whatever, but it matters it when matter you're a 30s, teen and but a 20-year-old, like, caca. This is what I'm saying. Like, and it just, I mean, at this point, are we surprised? No. Paul has proven that he likes them young. And this is fucking gross. The worst part about this whole thing is that there was an immediate sexual attraction between these two that they immediately acted upon. This part made me want to, like... Much to the dismay of their companions. Um, The Killer Queen's podcast said that they had sex for four hours. That checks out. Gross. Well, especially because she likes some of the things he likes. Exactly. Part of where this, like, chemical attraction came from is because she allegedly encouraged his more sadistic behavior in the bedroom, unlike any woman he had met before. Because before, I think, wasn't it sort of like a game for him to find somebody he could control and belittle, and she was, it like... It certainly seemed like it. ...supporting all of these behaviors. Mm-hmm. I- <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> there are even accounts that she knew that he was the Scarborough rapist and was cool with it, possibly even encouraging it. However, according to Carla much later on, she was not aware of this information until their honeymoon. Liar. But still, their honeymoon... <laughs> There's so much that happens after the honeymoon. <laughs> so many oh. things. So eventually, our dear friend Carla mm. graduates from high school. She leaves the pet shop and upgrade, starts to work at a veterinary <laughs> clinic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> while working there, she shares bits about her relationship with Paul. Um, she claimed she was not uh, able to drive herself places anymore or go out with friends. Um, her friends and coworkers, bless their hearts, were concerned and grew increasingly concerned. They sort of began to question what the true nature of this relationship was, which I don't... Anybody with eyes, I guess. <laughs> Honestly. Um, at the same time, Carla and her family are absolutely just enamored with Paul. Like I said, he came across as a winner, someone who is ambitious and successful and could provide a good life for Carla... Because um, remember, he is super charming, but also super manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure the Hamolkas thought exactly what he wanted them to think, because that's just who he was. Like, hook, line, and sinker, yeah. people bought into whatever he was portraying. Well, and, like, that woman, Jennifer, really painted a picture of St. Catharines as, like, a very close-knit community. And just... Some place that you could feel safe with, and just, like, everybody being really, like, wholesome people. Like, that's, like, kind of the vibe that I got. And so, they wouldn't... I can imagine these people didn't even think twice. Like, why would they? Especially if he's coming across charming as fuck. Well, and at this time, he was working at, like, he got his, like, picture-perfect job at an accounting firm. Like, he was making really good money for the time. Like... He was all outward appearance, appearances exactly what they thought he was. They actually let him stay at the home. <laughs> the face that she's making. Because <laughs> I'm like, ugh. Uh, he stayed there for decent amounts of time, too. And they eventually actually allowed him to sleep in the same bed as Carla. Um, and in case you were wondering about the gaps of time in between the Scarborough attacks, this is where Paul was. Right. So, in theory... And it's documented. They do know that that's where he was during these breaks in time. Allegedly, what 
law enforcement and a lot of people think is that he wasn't there wasn't a need for him to attack like to go out and hunt and things like that because Carla was allegedly feeding his need to do these terrible things. Oh no. Especially because she's like she's 17 when they fucking meet. I mean, mark it down to being young, but when I was 17, I would definitely not have participated in this. I can say that with 1,000%. The actual, like, no thank you. (laughs) No. Like I said, he looks dead behind the eyes for me. So if I was approached at dinner, like him and his friend did to Carla and her her co-worker, I would have been like, no thank you, sir. Please move along. And, like, none of this even would have happened. So Um, he does at some point get tired of commuting and also gets Mm. fired from his accounting gig what he deserves well at least there's like this tiny bit of karma Mm -hmm. um unfortunately however this gives him more free time and he decides it's time for his move to saint catherine's um which he does in 1990 um for the sake of keeping track this is also when the last Scarborough rapist, like, official on-paper attack occurred. Right. For so those all, of you who are counting out there. So, looking back from law enforcement's point of view, like, this is all just, everything adds up. Like, it's all there. It's all Cause this, obvious. And I will say, when I was researching, this timeline really, like, put me through the ringer. Because it's not yeah. only two different perpetrators... But it's also a timeline that they're sharing for some of the time, and then not, and then it, there's just there's a lot happening here. So there's a really awful. I don't web blame me if you need a gross flowchart to figure out what the fuck is happening. Because honestly, <laughs> I did you. actually look up like a timeline just so I could have like one like like physical thing in front Big of me just so I could see it because I was just it's just a lot. It's just a lot to follow, and it's all gross. So I mean, it like. Is. They're the worst. So, the perceptions of Carla and Paul's relationship seem to be true to some extent. Although, while her friends may have seen her as a possible victim of abuse, that didn't seem to be the case. Mm-mm. The two were absolutely in a very twisted and toxic relationship, but rumor has it Carla was into it and she was in love and this was her Like, person. 100% like, bought, sold, she was all in on this. Yeah. So, their, their thing was... Paul acted as an abusive master while Carla was a willing slave. And the key word here is willing. So what the friends and family, I mean, they very well could have seen things that were abusive, but, like, in this dynamic that they were having, I think in their head, like, it was their, like, gross, sexy time stuff. I don't... (laughs) We're just sitting here, like, making faces at each other at this point. Because there's literally... And you'll see later, you'll see what she really is, but I just can't imagine being 17 or 18 or even 40 and buying mm-hmm. into this kind of, like, dynamic myself. No, thank you. No. No, pass. ma'am. Hard pass. No, ma'am. <laughs> um, the thing is, Carla may have never outwardly showed any signs that she enjoyed the depravity of Paul's sick desires, but the reality seems to be she likely was right there with him. Because Mr. Paul eventually proposes to Carla, and she is just, like, beside herself with joy. She's so excited. Um, she's constantly telling everyone that will listen how amazing he is. He's always buying her flashy gifts and doing things for her. Um, at one point post-engagement, she tells a friend that they were happier than ever, quote, happier than ever, 
He's being so great, so romantic, but that's typical of my honey, end quote. Gross. Gross. Um, I think that's part of the ego, though. And, like, the woman, Jennifer, made a really um, interesting note that her... Carla went through a physical transformation also that um, once she... She, like, made a point to say, like, she had really curly hair and then she started straightening it all the time and, like... She just physically changed. And, like, that honestly could just be attributed to growing up. Like, you, 17 to, like, 23 also, is such a formative. Also, 80s to 90s. Yeah. Like, that era. Night and day difference. Yeah. Like, and it's a formative time in your life and they're psychos. And so there's just a lot kind of going on here. So I don't necessarily read into the physical, like, her outer appearance. And plus, Paul's buying her shit. We just have a lot of questions. I Obviously, do. to these people, outward appearances were almost everything. Yeah. So, I'm sure he wanted to see, like, look how beautiful we are. We look Mm -hmm. like Ken and Barbie. We have the jewelry to match, the cars to match, the house to match. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Very much so. That was very much the situation. Um, But behind all of this, like, wonderfulness, apparently Paul was starting to get bored. Mm -hmm. And he began to fix, again, ew, you guys, ew. (laughs) He began to fixate on the fact that Carla was not a virgin when they met. Um, over time, he developed an obsession with Tammy, who is Carla's younger sister. He would obviously flirt with her and take any chance to spend time alone or whatever together. Um, he also peered into her windows and crept into her room at night so he could, again, <laughs> you guys, so what? Gross. Um, he crept into her room at night so he could masturbate while she was sleeping. Um, this is the part. This is the part. This, I think, is what almost broke Brie because it it was very hard because Carla allegedly helped him by ensuring the windows were broken um, and perpetually stayed unlocked. She didn't seem bothered by Paul's behavior in the slightest. In fact, she encouraged his attraction to her to her younger sister. What? um, And told him that she wanted to give him Tammy's virginity as a Christmas present. I'm sorry. Like, on a silver platter, this bitch was like, sure, you can have my younger sister. So, again, this leads me to believe that she's, like, all in on this fantasy that, like... This is the moment. Because, so, the first time I was ever exposed to this case was watching the documentary that I then rewatched to re-familiarize myself with this. Oh, okay. And so, my first exposure to this case was told in a way that Carla was, was, in fact... A battered woman and we're gonna see later on that she attempts to portray this and so I was absolutely fucking devastated when I started learning more about this case right. and you know because this this detail is not in the documentary but this has been in very many other sources <laughs> so I, you mentioned you watched the documentary first i saw her on snap mm. and deadly women and okay. they do not they do not fuck around no 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 they're like this bitch was crazy so it sort of was definitely a different first introduction yeah. for me so I knew this was coming, but you did not. <laughs> I did not. I mean, I. it's been a long time since I've heard the story. So, like, when I re-realized that she literally was like, oh, my God, Christmas present? Perfect. Like, my sister, what? though? 
my younger brother is one of the most important people to me on the planet and I will never like not try to like protect him in any way I could not like how is that even a thought in your brain let alone something that you move forward with especially because you know this person is a violent offender already yes but now you're literally offering up the silver platter of like let us get this plan figured out. I fucking hate her. I hate this bitch. <laughs> I hate her so much. Carla decides that they're going to go through with the plan for this present um, on December 23rd, 1990. So literally, like, the day before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Like, When else are you supposed to give a Christmas present? I mean, never, because Ugh. it's a human person, but... <laughs> So, the Homolkas are enjoying a Christmas party that evening and allowed Tammy to partake in some alcoholic beverages. She's 15. It's the early 90s. It's no big deal. I mean, she was having well, a good time. She's at home. It's not like she's ripping shots. Right, exactly. She she's under her parents. Or whatever. She's under her parents' supervision. She specifically was interested in what Paul and Carla were drinking. You poor, poor girl. So, uh, from everything that I read, Tammy did idolize her older sister. Oh, yeah. And thought she was, like, somebody I want to be like, this poor girl. Oh, for sure. For sure. sure. And, like, so from what I understand, like, the party dies down, and it ends up being just the three of them. Tammy, Paul, and Carla. And I believe it was in the basement from everything I read. Yeah, they, like, moved themselves down there. And so Carla proceeds to drug her sister that night by putting sleeping pills in her drink. And when Tammy loses consciousness, Carla further drugs her sister by pressing a halothane-soaked cloth to her nose and mouth. So I didn't know what halothane was. So for those of you who don't know, get this shit. It's a general inhalation anesthetic that is used for induction and maintenance of general anesthesia. It reduces blood pressure decreases pulse rate and depresses respiration while inducing muscle relaxation relaxation and it also reduces pain sensitivity by altering tissue excitability well and i think so it's not supposed to be pushed against your face with the liquid it's It's supposed to be a gas right with the mask so in addition to being fucked up they, this further fucked her up, I think, the way that they... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... Wound up giving her the additional think about, drugs. Think about how you feel coming out of anesthesia. Like... Not great. I, I apparently react really well to anesthesia, because I, like, popped up for my surgery last summer, and I was like, hey, can I go home now? My dad gets violently <laughs> ill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mark doesn't handle it super well yeah. either so not looking forward to that soon but it doesn't bother me like but that think about but how again, though, you are and the whole the whole the that's thing, also in a professional medical setting not in a basement with a dirty rag mushed up against your face when i read what, what halothane I mean? was used for i honestly had to stop writing and just walk away for the night because i was just so violently like moved by this because disgusted by these people like I'm just thinking about what anesthesia is meant to do and just like what it's just their intent is so clear and and that's Absolutely. the thing that really gets me is that this was just so thought out and premeditated uh, which they say it wasn't but okay, okay how was it not like you can't give me these facts in these details and tell me that this bitch was not like okay so then we're gonna do this and, and then this, we're gonna do this and, this and here let me go steal the halothane from the vet clinic I work at cause that's where she got it guys like, 
What? Well, well, the whole time she was portraying herself as sort of a victim to her co-workers. That's of course she was. Like, of course she fucking was. Um, so again, we're going to go in with the trigger warning. Mm-hmm. It gets gross. Yeah. Like, real gross. The things they did were not fun. Um, but I feel as though Tammy's memory deserves us telling the story fully. Um, so on this night, after all of these drugs, Carla and Paul undressed Tammy and they go on to film themselves taking turns sexually assaulting her in the basement. Um, at some point during the night, Tammy begins to vomit and is choking on it and eventually is asphyxiating, basically, on her own vomit, which, you know, with any drug overdose is a thing. Yeah. Um, Paul and Carla try to revive her themselves, but to no avail. Um, so they realize they have to call the police. Um, whatever they can pick up that could be construed as evidence goes away. They yeah. just hide it. And they call 911. Um, they dress Tammy again. They take her back to her bedroom. So in this instance, their plan was basically just to stay calm and act as if they had no clue what could have possibly happened. Like, shrug my shoulders. Yeah, like they were basically blaming it out. Like, blaming On the out. alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, right? I did not want to... <laughs> I'm not laughing at this. I'm laughing at the song. I, I, I can't, can't help my pop culture references. I can't stop my brain from wondering. can't help where it goes. It just happens, guys. Um, so first responders do eventually arrive on the scene, take over the situation. They see that Tammy's unconscious, has been vomiting, and has a chemical burn on her face. Well, which I wonder what that was from. Clearly it was the alcohol. The no. Rum and Unless you're not. lighting it on your face or something. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I have questions for these people. So many. Um, So they rush her to St. Catherine's General Hospital, and unfortunately, several hours later, Tammy is pronounced dead. The family is obviously questioned about the sequence of events that has led us here. Paul and Tammy told their version of events, and they were believed, even though... (laughs) You guys, they were literally fucking vacuuming and doing laundry in the middle of the goddamn night. Like, how is that not suspicious? If I was their mother, I'd be like, hmm... This seems odd. Well, and again, so I think Paul had them all just Stockholmed into believing that, like, he was a good guy. He would never do anything. I was just trying to help around the house. <laughs> what? It was 2 a.m. in the morning? What the fuck is After a night you? of drinking rum and eggnogs, like, I've never that one time. That makes my tummy hurt so much. I've never Ooh. one time been drunk and been like, you know what? Let me do laundry. No. What? No. Okay, I mean, here. maybe if you take some, like, speed or do some lines <laughs> or something, like, fuck yeah, I'll scrub the walls, but, like, not, I'm drinking my rum, let me do some laundry, like, right, no thanks, no, no, no thank good. you. Mm-hmm. I get sleepy. No. <laughs> I'm good. Mm. It's just, mm, I don't like any of it. I just don't like it. So, despite the chemical burn, there were no drugs detected in Tammy's system. And they rule Tammy's death an accident. Makes me want to flip. The it makes table me want over. to rage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they they rule rule it as a result of choking on vomit from alcohol poisoning, which like. But wouldn't they know how much alcohol she had had? Aren't there ways to test that? Your blood alcohol level is a blood test, right? Because right? it's called BAC, blood alcohol <laughs> right. content. It's literally in the name. Right? You would think, I don't really know. I, I can't help but wonder if it was one of those things where they're like, oh, well, 
this is what the family says happened. I would imagine the parents probably did just assume that she drank too much and this wasn't... Un- like, this does happen. That's the thing. Is that... it's And that is true. This you kind of situation like, happens. Hazing and stuff like that. Like, right. kids think they can drink their faces off Absolutely. and they, in fact, cannot do Alcohol that. poisoning is no fucking joke. So, like, I, I can see how they could get to this conclusion. It just makes me angry because we have, you know, hindsight. Well, and the fact that, like, I would have been like, what's the chemical burn from? Or it's almost like sort of like they grazed the surface. Yeah, it's like they wrote it. Like, okay, chemical burn, but mm, no chemicals. I wonder how she got that. Oh, don't. But who I cares? Because I, I, I guess you can huff spray paint and stuff like that. But, yeah. like, you also have, like, spray paint <laughs> on your face. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I just have so many, I have so many questions. It's just really unfortunate because as we're seeing... In the Scarborough attacks, as we're seeing now, and we're going to see moving forward, there's a lot of moments where, like, I feel like police really did try to do what they thought was best for the public and to, and to try to solve these. But at the same time, there were so many situations that were mishandled. Well, and, and my belief is they didn't take it, not take it seriously, but they didn't realize what kind of danger they were yeah. playing with. Do you know well, what I mean? Well, and another reason why I think this story is important to tell is because sex crimes generally speaking are looked at as less than and it's just really unfortunate because people don't understand if you survive an attack you are left with that for the rest of your life that is something that you are going to have it's to like deal a with. scar that's never going to go away Correct. it's not physical and no one can see it but that doesn't mean it's not it changes there you and ugly it changes you fundamentally and it fucks with you and you so right, like girl. That's those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking when we're going through all of this. So I just can't help but get angry and just get really irate. And this is this and this is just another add-on to the thing. So like after Tammy dies, Paul and Carla, they just fucking move out. Like the family said they were giving Carla's family some space. Of course they were. They murdered her. And so they're like, you know what? Guilty conscience much? We're gonna Mm. go. You mm-hmm. guys can grieve over here. We're going to go rent well, a they bungalow. Well, they didn't want to be sad. They wanted to, like, Cause they couldn't, party more. You can't fake sadness all the time. That has to be exhausting. I don't... Because that's what they'd have to do, right? I hate these people. <laughs> They're the fucking worst. Um, so you might have noticed that there was a reference in there to there actually being video footage of Tammy's murder. So it was not only her murder, it was the whole entire sexual assault. They filmed themselves the whole entire time from start to finish. Um, This will go on to play a role throughout the investigation. Um, See, at some point in the past, Paul decides, you know what would be such a good idea is to buy a video recorder and then document (laughs) basically everything. Which anybody in the late 80s, early 90s who had video recorder money did because it was such a novelty. Remember, though, they were, like, the size of a VCR. Like, that was big as fuck. Like, there's There's no way to subtly (laughs) drag that shit around. Like, I always think of, there's an episode of Always Sunny where Charlie has to, like, follow Mac and Frank around to, like videotape them doing the news or something and he's got this like big giant thing that's like the size of his head and that's always what I think of. It's literally the size of like an actual VCR player just on your shoulder. Yeah. Um, So again like we said we did watch a documentary on this case titled The Ken and Barbie Killers The Lost Tapes. There are some actual clips of the footage. Not any of... Nothing 
atrocious. Yeah. Because we would not recommend that you watch no, it I if would it was atrocious. I would never put myself through that in the <laughs> mm-hmm. first place. I don't think I could either. But I would I would really recommend the documentary. It especially. is a very good, it is a very in-depth documentary. It's um, very well done. And like I said, I it was my first exposure to the case. And honestly, it tells the story in a way that kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. Even if you know the information beforehand. Um, they have a lot of people like detectives and journalists and things like that. Um, I really would recommend it. I got mine. I saw it through uh, Discovery Plus on Amazon Prime. Okay. So that had to have been where I because I have Hulu and I have all the things. Yeah. I have found some issues finding some things. But I'm pretty other sure things, I'll see a hundred of them. I'm pretty sure it's on Hulu, but you have to have the like live TV subscription. Which I which don't. what the fuck even is that? I think it's for sports, but it's I don't want to watch sports on Hulu. That's stupid. I'm good. Stupid. So, we're going to break there because that's enough awfulness for one day. It is. Um, <laughs> we are uh, going to catch you with the rest of it. We're going to move into what is known as the schoolhouse murder or schoolgirl murders. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and continue on with the story. And I can't wait till we get to the deal with the devil part. Yeah. Once we can get through the next little bit of awfulness, the interesting part is the legal process in Canada. It really is, because I had to go back and read, when I was doing my research, just keep rereading things. Yeah. And keep going down rabbit holes of, like, what all these things were, because they have some stuff that I was like, huh? This was a (laughs) really, this was a a precedent-setting case. It was. For Canada, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, and I am excited for us to get to that point so that being said normal wrap up you guys know the drill we are on social medias instagram facebook and twitter we've got at crime and spirits pod for facebook and instagram at crime spirits pod for twitter uh we post our shopping lists and our drink recipes and any other miscellaneous things that you may need to know about us. But keep checking back in with us. We're always posting random shit. Mm-hmm. It's Pride this weekend, so we'll see what's good. Yeah, happy Pride, guys. Hey. This is, like, the first time that we're recording an episode that we're actually going to, like, release, like, in the near next it's week. True. So it can be, like, topical, if you Yay. will. So um, thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate you guys. And we will pick up next week. Next week. We'll see you next week for part two. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.